You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was Add 10 Gallons? Add 10 Gallons. My first thought was, we got to put Act Chill. Yeah, great. <laughs> Trucks on the, on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L dot com. Welcome in to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Thanks for coming back with us. This is episode 39 for those of you keeping count. We're joined with the boys as always. Paul, what's up, man? Brother, I am doing great. My life is a whirlwind on the personal side, and it is positive on the professional side. So let's just keep rocking and rolling here. Joey, uh, can you top that? I could probably top uh, life being more chaotic, but... Yeah, <laughs> everything's good. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you got the, is that just from the two little kids at home or you got more going on? Nah, it's mostly just kids. That's just enough. kids. Yeah, I don't know if I'd be staying if it was any more than that. <laughs> <laughs> two under three? I mean, that's that's pretty hardcore. Joey goes, I'm having so much fun, I can't stand it, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's right. No, but hey, it's a good time of year. It's holidays, uh, Christmas coming up. It's bowl season in college football. You know, there's people that like to say we got too many bowl games, too many things. There's, to me, there's never enough. I love it. All the non-conference action, I bring it on, inject it right into my veins. Yeah. Yeah, well, it gives mm-hmm. the guys something to play for. You know, all those bowl games, they have some kind of swag bag, like the players get stuff to some degree. It's a field trip of sorts, but you got some teams that want to play and some teams that don't. I'm not going to play my best uh, Skip Bayless, but I do think that the NIL is killing bowl season. But see, well, okay, well, tell me how it's NIL versus, like, guys that are preparing for the draft or whatever. Because, I mean, the big one was Florida got boat raced this weekend. And, mm-hmm. But they had, like, 20 guys sitting out. That's still good to see. <laughs> <laughs> Joey loves watching the Gators get stomped. He didn't care. If and they did, too. Oh, they had yeah. to kick a field goal late so they didn't get shut out. Did they? Yeah. I didn't, dude. After I, I sent y'all a screen grab. It was, like, 30 mm-hmm. to nothing. And I, after that, I was I turned it off, which if you watch the Indianapolis Colts this Sunday – there is no lead that is safe, apparently, in Not this in the world. NFL. But, Goodness. But back to uh, the NIL discussion. I, I don't know, man. I don't know if that's really it. That's keeping them out. I could be wrong. I, I hadn't really um, – I, I don't I as- have a major – I associate the accelerated use of the transfer portal with the NIL deal 
and the transfer portal associated with the NIL, associated with players being able to declare early for the draft, it all kind of culminates in as soon as that conference championship game's over, the last game of the year, like guys do not care about the bowl games. And some teams do, some teams don't. But if you if you're in Florida's case, I mean, they had over 20 guys sit out, most of them important players. So you're not getting a good on good. You're basically basically had Oregon State playing the B or C squad for Florida. And it definitely, you know, you had one team that didn't want to play and it ended up being a crappy bowl game. Mm. It was a great matchup because when else are you going to see Oregon State and Florida play? It's literally two opposite ends of the country. Yeah, I love it, that. It would have been a great matchup. On paper, it's a great matchup, but it was a terrible game because one team didn't even want to be there. So I kind of associate that with, like, the modern-day college football. That is, like, these guys are essentially semi-professional athletes. It's almost like what you're saying is the bowl games are going to end up like the Pro Bowl. Like, if you're playing for the in the Super Bowl, you know, that's understandable. Yeah, of course you're going to sit out the Pro Bowl. But, like, other than that, I mean, who cares about going to the Pro Bowl? Or I don't even know. I've, I haven't watched Pro Bowl in years. It's been a long time since I watched the Pro Bowl. Well, I can assume that you don't know this then. This year's Pro Bowl is going to be flag football. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like you said, who wants to go? Well, it was The people who liked to go to that uh, were the players that had families more on a free vacation to Hawaii. Um, yeah. But other than that, it's just injury. You're just risking injury. It's not worth it. But getting back to uh, getting back to the college boys, you're like you know they're semi-professional athletes. I just think about that astronaut meme where one astronaut's behind the other one with a gun pointing. Always has been. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, always have been semi-pro athletes. What I think is different now is I don't know that nil is the factor personally. I my I think it's actually just the transfer portal. And so what ends up happening is you got schools like even Alabama. Alabama's not immune to this. Nick Saban, as great as he is, he, he can get from the transfer portals, but we lose to the transfer portal. We've actually got, I think, our top three pass catchers, like all in the transfer portal. We have like a, we have a starting offensive lineman or maybe two that are in the transfer portal. We have a lot of starters that are like, you know what, I, I see the writing on the wall, I'm not happy here anymore, or I'm going to get replaced or whatever, I'm out. And I, mean, I think we have like a dozen players, like legit four-star, five-star guys. Mm-hmm. I actually think when I look at Alabama's team, my brother was asking me earlier this year, like, what happened? Like, if if anybody here listens to this podcast and watched Alabama football this year, you would see it was like it was a horrible team. How many games did we win by? Like two points, one point, last second yeah. field goals. Y'all had some close games to not good teams. Could could have easily been six and six this year. Easily, it's not an exaggeration. And I'm, this isn't a whiny Alabama fan. Like we or probably pretty lucky to have only had the couple losses that we did, seriously. And so he was like, what, what is it about this team that's not as good as the other team? And I think it was team chemistry. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think was a problem is the practices at Alabama are so hard through the years that when you've gone through like a couple of years of that conditioning program, that workout program, that regimen, and you're listening to Saban and you think you're doing all the right things, even if you're not, you know, they're 19. They think they're doing all the right things, and they're like, now it's my turn, now it's my turn. And some dude just transfers in from Louisville, and he takes your starting wide receiver spot. Guy transfers in from Vanderbilt, takes the starting left tackle spot. Dude transfers in from Georgia Tech, takes the starting running back spot. Where were these people the last two, three, four years right. that I've been grinding in Tuscaloosa, and they just come in and get the starting spot? That's a really difficult way, even if they're good players, it's a very difficult way to build team chemistry. Yeah. Do you think that gets better? You think it's just going to 
be the same? Is it going to get worse? Or what? what I'll say is I, I don't I don't ever want to bet against Nick Saban being able to adapt. I think he's always been able to adapt. You know, when we started getting boat raced by Johnny Manziel, and he and, and Nick Saban said, "All right, my prototype for a defensive lineman and a middle linebacker is no longer okay for this game. We're getting spread out. I I need to adapt to like what I'm looking for and the characteristics of def- the defensive front seven. So he had to change in order to overcome playing Cam Newton and Johnny Manziel and these other mobile quarterbacks. So I don't want to bet against Nick Saban. The the transfer portal to me is very similar to, and what it does to the game of college football is very similar to what the one-and-done rule did to college basketball. So you got guys that would have committed directly to the draft, but now they got to go to a school for one year just so the NCAA says that, okay, yeah, you can go play professional sports now. And honestly, it cut the blue-chip programs off at the knees. Kentucky, North Carolina, Duke, you get these one-and-done guys roll through there, and on paper, they got guys that can jump out of the gym, and they're great, but there's no team chemistry, and inevitably, they'll lose to a middle-tier school with five starting seniors every single year in the tournament. Like, you got Iowa with five starting seniors, and every four years, they make a great run, and they beat a blue-chip program. Wisconsin does it every year. Wisconsin does it, yep. Gonzaga does it. All the t- every year, you know, you get these mid-tier programs where they get the three and four stars, but they stay for three or four years, and they beat these literally 18-year-old boys who are all-world, but they don't play for a team. They might, ha- they, might, they might say Kentucky or UNC on their chest, but they ain't playing for a team, you know. And I think college football is getting there with the transfer portal because, like you just said, you got guys that aren't playing for a team. They're playing for draft, for draft status. And it actually, it might, you can make the argument that it creates animosity within a locker room because you got guys there who are playing for a team and guys who aren't playing for a team. I'm not going to actually argue that NIL might might create more parity. It might, uh, but it might create parity in a different way. It might actually open up the door that you can, and from a marketing standpoint, you can probably build more hype around programs mm-hmm. uh, more easily. So it may it may bring parity a little bit faster. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bet against Nick Saban until it happens. But here's a good example of like hype and parity and where NIL kind of factors in um, is actually at the University of Tennessee. So they bring in the new coach Hypel, who they got right now, and it's a couple years back. And so everybody's kind of just like, you know, how many coaches have y'all had at Tennessee in the last ten years? A ton, right? So it's just another coach set change. The fan base is gonna hang back and. We'll give him a chance to show us. Well, boom, the first season, the dude averages like 45 a game. And they're like, and it could have been 60 a game. If you didn't watch Tennessee two years ago, how many balls did Hendon Hooker throw over his wide-open receivers down the field? Guy yeah. could not throw the deep and accurate deep ball to save his mm-hmm. life. Yeah, and him so, and Milton were basically the same dude. Uh, Hooker just didn't get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they're just overthrowing everybody. Could, they could have easily scored 60 a game. And nobody's seen an offense like that. Well, this year, everybody's prepared for it. They st- and Hooker actually hits deep balls now. And so they still end up scoring 45 a game every game. And that the ability to go out there and pitch recruits, like the boosters at Tennessee have more money than God. They're willing to actually give it to the program. And they're like, hey, look, we actually have a high-flying offense, and there's money behind it. You can have t- playing time, status, there's a lot of big-time recruits that are committed to Tennessee right now, and they're flashy kids, like real flashy, not this hard-nosed, brick-by-brick type of nonsense. No, these, these boys want to ride around in Lambos. They are, they are ballers, and they're committed to Tennessee. Right. And I think that's a more interesting angle that 
you will now have schools not named Oregon that have a way to be flashy and hyped up. Gotcha. And the NIL is making that possible. It's a great point. It's a great point. Yeah, I mean, how many how many guys go to Oregon because of the uh, because of the hundred percent the drip, as the kids say these days. Well, hundred <laughs> the Nike factories at the end of the practice field. Yeah, like, of course. I mean, it's freaking awesome. Yep. You know, I'm just glad that. Uh, the three of us get to show the world we know something besides concrete. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, we got to prove the concrete part each and every episode. So what you got, what you got today to prove your worth? Well, if you made it this far into the episode, we really appreciate you sticking around. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, right, well, I, I did want to jump into this story that I saw. Um, the Department of Energy is funding what they're calling cement precalcining heat demonstration. So that's what they're calling it. Let's talk through what it really is. Okay. So. Uh, we all know the decarbonization stuff that's going on. And so there's a lot of money out there right now for companies that are willing to research ways to decrease their CO2. Let's talk first about what it is that cement companies already do. And then what this company is trying to do to um, make it even more green than it already is. All right. So one of the things cement companies do when they go to actually manufacture cement and they want to make the clinker, you know, they load the the feed into a silo, but the, it's a reverse silo. Everything has to be moved up through an, uh, an elevator shaft type system. And so as it's being moved up to the top of the tower, so it can actually go into the horizontal kiln, as it's being moved up, um, I don't know how many years, a couple of decades ago or whatever it was, the cement guy said, well, hey, we can use less energy heating the limestone in the rotary kiln if we preheat it in the tower. So as the material is moving up through the tower to get the top of the room, the heat from the kiln is actually being blown into that tower. So the rock's already pretty flipping hot by the time it gets to the kiln. It reduces the amount of time it has to be cooked, and everybody saves money. You actually build shorter, shorter kiln lengths and save energy, right? So now the government is researching a way to take that same phenomenon but heat the aggregates up even further using the power of the sun. So I don't mean solar power plants. I mean solar rays concentrated heat the aggregates to 950 C before they enter into that kiln. A super greenhouse of sorts? Super green. So actually, they're, ta- they're trying to do a late... This is where I start laughing because this is right out of like... Uh, like cartoons or some movie or whatever, and these people are actually legitimately trying to do it, and it makes me laugh. I feel like I saw this in a science fiction movie or some movie a long time ago, and now they're trying to make it real life, and I love that. I laugh, but also kind of love that kind of stuff. So what this company is, company's called Heliogen, and they have what they call the Heliostat technology. And what the Heliostat is, is these guys in like a large area on the ground, they position mirrors on the ground in a circular shape, a little bit of a convex shape. And so when the sun hits all the mirrors, they bounce the rays into a single focular point that hits another singular mirror that then you know shine, that focuses all that uh, radiant energy down into an exact spot. Hmm. So they're making a sun laser to, to <laughs> preheat Yes. All the limestone. And what what makes it and I swear like at some point in life I remember seeing like some movie that some people like rolled out like a big mirror but it was, vert- it was standing like vertically 
and it was in a circle. And it, uh, Joe, you know what I'm talking about? I'm, I'm not crazy. Is it Archimedes or something? Yeah, I'm like telling you, I'm back it was in Troy. The, yeah, somewhere back in that day. Exactly. I wanted to say it was, I don't know if it was the movie Troy, but it was, yeah, exactly. It was the story of Archimedes. And so I'm pretty sure it was that. So they're basically t- doing that. But uh, instead of instead of trying to focus it all just one time, they're going to have it on the ground and it'll it'll shoot it up to a single point that'll then bounce it down into the cooling tower. What's interesting about this technology is not that they're doing what Archimedes supposedly did. What's interesting, or Agamemnon or whoever it was that did this anyway, Somebody that knows what they're talking about is listening to this, throwing up. <laughs> um, so the interesting part about this one, which like kind of brings it into 2022, is that everything is uh, – all every each one of these mirror panels that's been arrayed on the ground is controlled such that it follows the sun so that you're getting constant – as long as the sun's up and shining, you're getting constant – uh, focused rays. So, because if they were in a singular fixed position, you would have to wait until the sun got in the, the exact spot you need it to get the uh, the energy that you're looking for. But if if these panels can be maneuvered, you know, during uh, during the day to follow the sun, then you can actually uh, you use that sunlight all day long. Right. And that that to me is like actually kind of awesome. <laughs> that is cool. Life imitates art, right? But like. For, so, for that, the only thing I can think of initially, anyway, first of all, it's super cool. It's a great idea. But the only thing I can think of is after the next natural disaster that wipes everybody off the planet, uh, and then you know millions of years afterwards, when our uh, with the people that come after us are scavenging the earth for signs of life previously, they're going to come across something like this. Like, oh, this must be like It'll some work. super cool religious ritual yep, that they were worshiping, <laughs> worshiping the sun god yeah <laughs> like you, you can notice how, how important the sun was to these people because <laughs> they, they would actually track it all day long and they must have been using the harnessing that energy this is, <laughs> this is amazing I wonder what they called their sun god Ooh, they must have called it lehigh <laughs> i see that I see that transcribed everywhere <laughs> <laughs> Oh they god. called him Titan. They called him Titan. Titan America. The great, America. The great sun god Titan. <laughs> it can't be any worse than in the George Clooney Batman uh, movie way back in the day where they literally redirected sunlight with satellites to defeat Mr. Freeze in the ending of the movie. So Nice. There have been worse nice. ideas, Paul. <laughs> I wasn't even saying this was a bad idea. I, think, <laughs> I find it, and, and I actually find it hilarious, entertaining, and I'm kind of rooting for him. I hope it actually works. And my problem is, is that I see like quotes in these articles from the head of the Department of Energy, Secretary Granholm, who's the most unserious human being that ever lived. And when she's like touting the program, I'm like, nope, I'm done. It's not going to work. Yeah. But yeah, as soon as you put your stamp of approval on it, that's a no for me. Yeah. Dog. Yeah. Once she's <laughs> in, I'm like, all right, I'm out. But, but it actually looks awesome. I actually, I, I think it's, I think the whole thing is hilarious because, like, the amount of land that they're having to take up with this uh, mirror array and the amount of energy that it's going to take to power the thing, um, you know, it all is going to eventually it's going to have to be automated to follow the sun. Mm-hmm. It's not yet. Right now, they're having to position everything manually. Uh, well, it's well, it's hydraulic, so they're not going out there physically turning each thing, but they're having to monitor the sun, the position of the sun, and turn you know, and then hit the buttons and turn each mirror. So it's it's not efficient in any way. It's just a prototype, but it's, it's still cool. Like if they can do that, I mean that that's still cool. I don't care what you say. 
Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. But do you know, you know, Secretary Granholm, this might be a little too cheap for her taste buds because uh, just recently GM uh, uh, venture, joint venture between LG and General Motors, uh, they got a $2.5 billion federal loan to boost EV battery manufacturing right here in the great U.S. of A. So where that might be necessary, if this project doesn't have a B tied to the back of it, maybe our secretary won't be uh, terribly inclined. That's hilarious. No, this one has M's attached to it, um, but right now it's too expensive to use. Well, there's a rookie number. you got to bump the numbers up. <laughs> I know that's right. The, I actually am totally for the uh, battery manufacturing here, the chips manufacturing here, the mm-hmm. mining of rare earths here. The Well, that part they're not going to do. They're not doing the rare earths? They're not well, going to. Well, they're have... opening, I mean, I know lithium's not a rare earth, but they're opening lithium mines. There is actually a project that the Department of Energy is, I think it was the Department of Energy is funding. It's actually looking at, um, there are rare earths in this country, but you have to liberate them mm-hmm. from other minerals. So you can't, you're not just mining that. You have to, and so it's a process. And we actually aren't a thousand percent sure that it can be done. Uh, they think it can be done. You can liberate it, the rare earths. And then even then it's uh, how much is there? How much is that going to cost? Like, there, so there's a lot to figure out there. But I know we're looking at that here in this country. Well, and, and to your point, we're also, and this is something that I have harped on for the last however long EVs have been kind of like in in the limelight and been scrutinized. My biggest, the biggest hole I try to poke in that in that tarp is what do you do with the batteries when they're done? Like, how do you recycle these batteries? Because the resources aren't there to sustain 100% EVs. You're going to need to recycle it. And you can recycle it now, but it's just not efficient enough for people to be incentivized to do so. But I just saw that uh, Redwood Materials, Redwood Materials is, a, is really big into the manufacturing of lithium-ion batteries. They're building a 3.5, then they are self-funding this from the research I was able to do. Without the help of the federal government, they're building a $3.5 billion EV battery recycling plant in South Carolina. It's already underway. Or they're broke ground. Really? Broke ground. They're gonna they're gonna start major construction Q1 of 23. That's great news. You know, there's another problem in this whole chain though, and uh, there, there's just like some big articles out recently about it coming out of California because you know the people that are listening to this probably already know that you're not gonna be able to. Uh, make or maybe is it buy or make? I can't remember if it's buy, sell, make. I can't remember, can't remember exactly which one of those three. In California, after twenty twenty five or twenty thirty, you can't buy an yeah. internal combustion gasoline, uh, gasoline sell. or diesel engines. Sell, you can't mm-hmm. sell it. So you can buy one if you buy it in another state. Yeah, and that kind of. Thing. So you can't sell one, and that that's not just for cars. That's for anything. Yeah. So you can't buy a gas powered lawnmower. Everything's got to be electric. So um, that's coming. So one of the issues is if you switch, if you were to switch the trucks, so you're talking uh, like SG, uh, 18 wheelers, ready mix trucks. Mm-hmm. If you're gonna buy one made in California, yeah, industrial heavy or you're duty buy industrial one, vehicles. Yeah. Mm-hmm, if you're gonna, if you're in California, and you need to buy one. You know what are you gonna do? And because you got, so let's say, let's just pretend everybody's electric or whatever. All right, where are you gonna charge the thing? Oh, yeah, their power grid can't sustain the electric vehicles that they have now. Let's pretend the power grid can sustain it. Where? Nevada. Where are, the, where are these charging stations at? Okay, so this got interesting. So I don't know how they calculated this number exactly because I went through and tried to run. I ran the numbers the other day on this. Um, there are approximately 1,000, 1,100 diesel fueling stations in California. Mm. 
so uh, about eleven hundred diesel fueling stations. Let's just let's just be generous and say that it, each of the on the, on average. So you have let's pretend they have a Bucky's and then they also have like smaller stores. So let's just say on average you got ten fueling pumps at each of these stations. So we're just we're big round numbers: ten thousand pumps to fuel the trucks and. They are saying that if they're going to replace the fueling stations with EV charging stations for semis, that they're going to need 150,000 charging stations. Yeah, because the amount of time it takes to get a full charge on just a regular four-door sedan car now be is half an hour. Yeah, half an hour to 45 minutes. 45 minutes will get you from almost nothing to a full charge. Even on this, like, the new the, level that's a three Tesla supercharger, supercharger yeah. or whatever. Yep, a Tesla really? supercharger. And also, well, you would know you had one. And also, where your battery is determines the rate of charge. So if you roll in there with, like, 50 miles to go before you're out of juice— they will charge you at a faster rate than if you rolled in there at 200 miles and you just wanted to top off. Really? Yeah. They, that... pri- they prioritize how many kilowatts or how, how much amperage that they use to charge your vehicle. Really? Yeah, so your car actually charges faster when you roll in there almost empty than if you roll in there like half full. I didn't know that. So I tried to, So I went and ran some numbers. Right now, the SUV, not SUVs, the semis only get like 200 miles max and max right now you push the button so i'm gonna go with this what people don't understand is like for these heavy duty trucks anytime you put a load on an electric motor the efficiency and lifespan of that electric motor until your next charge drops dramatically oh so from being think about if you're using a drill if you just push the button and you're running that thing it'll go forever but if you're drilling a hole in like if you're running a hole saw and you're using that battery you have a fraction of time on that battery until you need to charge it again. For instance, Road and Track did this, right? So they took the new Ford all-electric, they call it the Lightning, which hurts my heart because the Ford Lightning used to it be was a badass truck. bad mamma jamma. Yeah, but anyway, this one's called the Lightning. They ruined the Mustang, too, but that's conversation for a different day. <laughs> they, made, they made the Mustang into, like, a I saw SUV. I've, anyway, I've seen it. Anyway, I've seen it. Anyway. The grill is the worst grill I've ever seen. Yeah. So they used this Lightning, and they determined that its range for... It was mainly highway, but they, they took this route. The range for the truck was about 320 miles. So then they put a car trailer behind it with an older, like, a internal combustion Mustang. Like, let's call it, like, a 2018 Mustang GT or whatever. So, about 32, 3,500 pounds. Might not be. Probably around 3,200 pounds. The range on this truck went down to 100 miles. Just hauling a car. Just hauling a car. Holy moly. Well within the way load capacity. Under, yeah, way under the towing capacity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you went from 320 miles of charge to 100 miles of charge. Wow. That's the most incredible. efficient way to transport anything is a diesel hybrid, but no one wants to use the term diesel because it's a dirty word. What do you mean diesel hybrid? Uh, diesel is the most efficient way to pull heavy things and also, like, take off from – because and there there is such a thing as clean diesel. I mean, they've done – both with the manufacturing of diesel fuel to make it low-sulfur diesel fuel and the way these – as much as I hate it, the DEF fluid helps – and just the way the exhaust systems, the intake and exhaust systems are designed and turbo technology, like diesel, diesel engines have come a long way in a short amount of time to be, uh, to emit less emissions. So culminating with clean diesel technology and a hybrid battery that you can rely on when you're at cruising speed, that's probably the most efficient way the most cost-effective, most efficient way to travel and 
move anything, whether it be low-weight freight, 18-wheeler, whatever. The diesel hybrid is the best way to do it, but no one wants to use the word diesel. Well, you know, just run the numbers on the trucks, the big trucks. It, the electric ones loaded down was getting like 200 miles, you know, is about what their range was. But if you are, just have like a standard tank um, and the diesel, you're, I mean, you're going like 1,000 miles. Yeah. So it's not even close. Um, but I still don't know how they get to the the 150,000 charging ports are needed just in California. It seems it, It's the time it would take it to charge. So with that, like a lot. with that many batteries, and that's why I brought up it takes 30 to 40 minutes to charge and a regular car. A regular car. To charge a semi, gosh, you don't. So that you means you go 200 miles and just stay overnight somewhere? I mean, that seems crazy. Right? Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not sustainable. For sure, and like right now, it takes it takes a little bit to put a hundred to two hundred gallons of diesel fuel in something, but it don't take forty minutes. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to. I actually thought about that too when I was running these numbers about what does it take time wise to fill up a truck. You know, there's trucks that park for a while and go in, and guys get showers or whatever they need to do, get lunch and stuff like that. So however long it takes to fill up usually isn't that big of a deal, but. It becomes a massive deal if it's six hours right. to charge a battery. I mean, that's crazy. Right. Six hours, and you only were able to go 200 miles in the first place? You drive for three hours and then have to stop for however long? It it seems it seems a bit much, but 150,000 stations, that's what the uh, – whatever the group, like some trucker association or something, that's the number they came out with. So it's probably biased and maybe not totally true, but when I was reading what their, uh, what their document said, it – it didn't seem they weren't using a bunch of wild activist language. They were like, "Hey, we're, we we want to be cleaner, but like this is not the way to do it." You no, know, a thousand miles makes sense. I mean, say you're getting five miles to a gallon. There's two hundred gallons of fuel in there. Well, tank. that's what I went. Well, that's exactly the number I went and ran. I was, yeah. like, I was like, "How many was the miles per gallon? Was the tank size? It was a thousand? They didn't have that in there. I just I just went and just ran some back of the napkin kind of stuff right. on my own. But the two hundred miles was what they were quoting on the the range of an electric, and then the, the number of stations just. Seemed wild. It seemed like a really big number. So I went. That's why I went looking. I was like, well, "How many diesel stations are in California?" Well, there's only a thousand. I thought that was actually kind of low. I did too. Um, there were there's only five thousand stations total, and four thousand of those are gasoline. A thousand of them are diesel. Mm-hmm. And then I was thinking, you know, let's just assume conservatively ten pumps. So you get ten thousand, ten thousand versus one hundred fifty thousand. Just seemed like a quite a discrepancy, and I didn't. I mean, I guess you're right. I don't see another variable here, unless I'm, we're missing a variable. Um, but time to charge. I mean, that's crazy. So you need 10 times the amount of stations, 15 times the amount of stations. How heavy are those trucks going to be? Because a car with all electric, you know, all the batteries and stuff in them, they're heavy as crap. How heavy is a semi-truck going to be? I, I don't I don't know. That's something that we could look up here. I do know that the smallest car Tesla makes is still 4,000 pounds. We, that's And that's kind of what I was getting at, you know, how heavy is that truck going to be? And then how much could that truck haul you while staying in the weight limit? Like, are you going to be able to haul less stuff? That's actually a great point because the, the road, the allowable road weights isn't going to change. It's still going to be, what is it, 40 or it's like 50,000, 60,000 pounds is like the allow or whatever, 80,000, whatever it is. Yeah, but like right like now, that. half of it. Yeah, I think it's 80,000, like half of the weight's already be taken up by the truck. And so you can usually put like 40, 45,000 uh, pounds on, like loaded onto the truck beds. But this, I think this has um, concern for concrete trucks too. Because I was just thinking what, that. 
we've seen concrete trucks go from uh, diesel to DEF to uh, nat- natural gas. You know, they've got some that are running on natural gas. And I think the logical evolution is to come up with an electric vehicle version. I just, I, I could see it actually, of all the vehicles out there that are heavy machinery that might actually work as an EV, why not con- Why not a concrete truck? How often is a concrete truck going further than 20 miles from the plant? It's not, it's not that often. It's going further than 20 miles from the plant. And then it might sit on site for 45 minutes and then come back 20 miles. After that, you have to charge it, though. I mean, you do you do one run. If you if the truck actually stayed on site that long, I mean, I know we all love our trucks to only sit on site for 10 minutes, but that's not always the case. But if you had a truck that went 20 miles, sat for 45, came back for 20 miles, you could do, what, two runs? Three yeah, runs, know. maybe? You could, uh, you could have a charging station right there where they stage before they get loaded, get charged as they're waiting. Oh, you'd have to have them at the plant for sure. But my my point being is that, like, how many loads could you get out of that truck? How many loads are you getting out of a truck now today, right? So so then you, you just look at that and say, can you get away with needing to charge a ready-mix truck? I don't know. That's, those are fun questions to ask, though. So both the U.S. and European unions approved higher-weight allowances for electric heavy-duty trucks. The EU allowed the electric trucks to be two tons heavier than their diesel equivalents, and the U.S. allowed them to be 0.9 tons. Oh, so 2,000 pounds. So a full, like, American metric, American ton heavier than their diesel equivalents. They can currently weigh up to 17,000 pounds. The trucks so, themselves are seventeen thousand. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so according to Elon Musk, this truck's going to weigh seventeen thousand pounds, or or right around there, and it'll have a range of five hundred miles a charge to a charge. He says it's five hundred miles. What they say? I know it's what he says. Yeah, oh, I know. I'm with you there. Yeah, uh, the the word on the street is it's half that. So yeah, he said that glass was indestructible too. Yeah, with or without a load, and what's real life look like versus you know whatever they're doing. Yeah, the first the first companies, it seems like the first companies are going to be Frito-Lay. So PepsiCo and Frito-Lay trucks are going to be, they already have an order in with Tesla, and they'll probably be the first like major U.S. company to actually use it with their fleets. Did you see the pictures of those trucks? They actually look pretty good. Yeah, they do, actually. actually. pretty good looking. And the insides are wild, too. The inside of it, I mean, it's like a small apartment in there. It's massive. It's actually pretty, pretty big inside the cab there to make it more comfortable for the drivers. Yeah, well, I will say, I mean, if you take that big diesel engine out with all the turbos and the exhaust system and, you know, batteries and the fuel tanks and everything like that, like it does free up a lot of room. Frees up a lot of room. Batteries are heavy, but, you know, I don't know. I don't know either. They it's, do look cool. It's interesting because I think, I think it's 60, I forget how much, what's the allowable road weight in the United States, but it's. It pretty much works out most of the time that you can get about 20 tons of material on a truck. Right. So uh, as long as they – yeah, you can't you can't do that to people, right? You can't be like, oh, you can do electric, but you can't carry 20 tons. Right. You can only carry 15 tons. That would be messed up. Well, I mean, the, the, right now the cost the cost is fuel now, right? But if these things have a quarter of the range, you're not buying fuel, but what's your time worth to you? You're not buying fuel, but you, 
probably buying electric because you're not going to stop at a station. You'd have to have something at your plant, I would have to imagine. Yeah, I mean. So you're still paying for the electricity. Yeah. Whatever that is. You're still paying for the electricity. There's still logistical issues with where you charge these things and how far they can go. And your total length of trip is going to be extended. Yeah. So the question is, is who's going to start making them? No, there's no. I doubt anybody's looking at a, to build a concrete truck with an electric battery. But that gives me semis make the most sense, right? Cargo, any kind of cargo truck, whether it's a big one or a little one, because it's all highway driving. Yeah, but with concrete trucks, they're much shorter trips usually. Shorter trips, so it makes it actually makes more sense. Yeah. to use a concrete truck because it's regional deliveries. Right, and that's why they can get away with using natural gas. Like a semi truck couldn't get away with using natural gas. Why not? There's no filling stations primarily. And then also, like it, the the range is lower mm. than than diesel fuel would be. But if your radius for a concrete truck is less than hundred miles, and you can go back to the oh, plant, it's way le- way less. That's what I mean. Miles, yeah. yeah, but way then you can go back to the plant and fill up there. You never you don't have to worry about filling stations. And okay, stuff. yeah, because really you think forty five minutes is kind of the furthest you'd want a truck to go. So, oh yeah. So just like ball hard back in the napkin, you know, 20, 30 miles maybe. Right. I mean, you really don't want to go further than forty five minutes. Man, those are great conversations. Joey, did you uh, you came with an article to talk about too, right? Yeah, there's not enough uh, gas stations, not enough charging stations, there's not enough anything else. There's also not enough workers out there, as we all know. But uh, what some companies may need to start looking at is uh, hiring people with criminal records. You know, we still joke about the uh, the construction industry and how you know and all the characters and whatnot that we see on the job sites, and some of them probably do have criminal records, but uh, this article says that one in three people have a criminal record, but it kind of focused on this one guy. This one guy is, see if I can pronounce his name, it's uh, spelled T-H-E-D-O. Thedo? I don't know. We'll just say Thedo. He was incarcerated as a teenager, was released as an adult. And what people don't realize is, so this guy, when he got incarcerated as a teenager, he didn't have an ID. He didn't have any kind of driver's license uh, he didn't have a, I don't even think he had a social security card. He had nothing. He also didn't have a social media presence. So when he went to apply somewhere, uh, you know, they couldn't exactly look him up on Facebook or Instagram or even LinkedIn or anything like that. Dude had to start from scratch. And the article kind of just talks about how hard it was for him to find a job and the guy was willing to work, but because of either company policies or just, you know, the, the environment that is, you know, the, the, the corporate environment. And maybe the stigmata of hiring, you know, ex-felons or or people with criminal records, however you want to call it. He had a super hard time finding a job. The article goes on to say that uh, it costs about $100 a day to keep somebody incarcerated, you know, jail or a prison. And the United States puts forth about $80 billion annually on jails and prisons. What they were trying to say with that was that, you know, if you're hiring these people, and keeping them out of jail, you're basically saving the country money. Instead of the taxpayers paying $100 a day to keep these people incarcerated, you're giving them a fresh start, and you're keeping them out of prison. They say 83% of prisoners are rearrested within nine years of their release, and they say part of that is because they can't find a decent job that keeps them occupied during the day. You know, it's just like, uh, you know, when we were kids, you did extracurricular stuff. Yes, yeah, I how you stay out of trouble. Yeah. Is the devil's plate thing. 
Yeah, that's what you know. I heard growing up, you know, if he's in the woods hunting, he ain't on the streets doing drugs <laughs> or just whatever. <laughs> you know, if Josh was racing, he wasn't getting in trouble. If Paul was golfing, he wasn't. You know, if or if he was playing if football. I was in trouble, my my dad had a firm backhand. So it, yeah, yeah, so same, fun. same. So and it goes on to say, you know, if the j- jobs themselves improves the community. So if you got a guy that you know that's fresh out. And uh, he's got a steady paying job that's going to do nothing but help, you know, the environment around him. You know, he's he's going to be able to afford to, if he has a family, if he's, he's going to be able to afford a house. He's going to be able to afford all these other kind of things because he has a decent job. Uh, and so this is just going to spread from there. To close out that story, uh, old Theto got hired at a company called Checker. I had to look that up. I think it's some kind of media, media company. Well, I guess what I was getting at is we like to joke around about all the characters that we see on the job site and how they probably all have criminal records where that's probably right. But that's probably one of the few chances that they got of having a fresh start. And I think the construction industry should probably get a ton of credit for giving those guys and and girls opportunities to better themselves instead of just, you know, turning them away at the door and they could potentially be part of that 83% that just gets, you know, locked up again within those nine that those nine years afterwards. That's crazy. I didn't realize the recidivism rate was that high on on that. But first off, kudos to us for our, our breadth of topics here. How about that? If you think it's concrete <laughs> podcast and you come in and this is what this is what you get. And uh, all topics barely tickling the fringes of the concrete <laughs> industry. But <laughs> tangential. <laughs> tangential. That's uh, if someone describes this podcast. What is it? It's tangential. <laughs> tangential to concrete. Um, but on a, on a serious note, um, I actually one of the things that I am sympathetic to is people that get, do get caught up in the criminal justice system here in this country, and for whatever reason, that became a but at one of those ideological points that like people that were fine with the way things were stand on one side of the line and people that just want to free all prisoners are on the other side. And I don't think, I don't think that's right. I think there's a massive gray area. And unless you, what I think ends up happening is unless you've been impacted by that in some way and actually had to like step foot in that arena, you just don't know. And like, I didn't know that even though I've, I've stepped foot in that arena and seen it firsthand, I did not know the recidivism rate was that high. But what I have seen is exactly how it messes people up, even if you did nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. So imagine that you got picked up. Um, I love the language. There's all this lingo. You, you caught a charge. You ever heard that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's hilarious. All right, you catch a charge. And uh, you, you get – plus pretend it's something serious. But you didn't actually do it. And you're innocent. But you don't have any money. You're from a bad area. It, but it was somebody you're friends with that did it. And someone's like, oh, I think I saw him. With, Josh was actually with him. That no, Josh was with Joey. You know, you got to go pick up Josh, too. So they pick up Josh. And, you know, Josh's got a bad home wife and no money and young fella. And, and they say, all right, well, you know, we don't know if you did this or not, but you're being charged with it. Um, and uh, you can have your day in court. But in order to get out of here tonight, you know, you need to post $10,000 bail. You're like, I don't have ten dollars to my name. Where am I gonna get ten grand? I'm like, oh, we got a system here that you can pay a thousand dollars, and you still a thousand dollars to the average American. Yeah, you heard me say I ain't got ten, right? So the recidiv- <laughs> <laughs> the recidivism rate on that you said it was eighty eighty three percent. Yeah, did you know there's also eighty percent of this country uh, that 
if you had a $500 emergency, couldn't cover it. Yeah. So I read that recently myself. So, so eighty percent of the people, if they got picked up and had to meet a bond, not not a bail of ten thousand, but you can bond out for a tenth of that. But if you had a bond for more than five hundred dollars, you can't meet that either. So what do you do? Well, they send you to prison, and you wait there until trial. Well, how long does that take? Well, somewhere between five months and a year, just depending. Like we don't know actually. So what happens while you're in there for five? Well, what if you had a job? Yeah. Guess where that just went? You got it. Gone. What if you had a house? Guess where that's at? Gone. Don't make a car payment for five months because you don't have any income? Car's gone. Everything, your entire life is completely ruined. And you may not even have done anything. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I can I am actually sympathetic to some of these arguments. I just haven't seen a better system put into place. There's yeah. not a better system out there yet that can correct for those failures while also protecting the people who are actual victims of crimes out there. There's just not a good middle ground yet. I'm hoping one day that somebody smarter than me will come up with that middle ground. And in the meantime, industries like the concrete industry can keep doing their part that when felons do get out that have, you know, because there are organizations out there that help get uh, people who uh, have been incarcerated, they get them back, get them a job, get them back into life and stuff. There are organizations out there. that can't. And they're becoming more prevalent. They're too. coming more prevalent. Mm-hmm. They should. Yeah. They should. What, is, what it actually is going to end up taking is somebody, uh, the easiest way to do it is find someone that can vouch. So, like, if one of these organizations is out there and they can actually house someone in, like, a halfway house type of situation for, like, a month yeah. and see their personality and see their – uh, willingness to work around the house at the halfway house and like their eagerness to, to work and their attitude and their personality. And then that person can be the guy who's like, Hey, I can vouch for Josh. You know, he just got out. He was in there for 12 months. He just got out. He spent 30 days in our facility. He's solid. You know, here, here are his charges. He's changed, whatever the thing is like, he's ready to go. I think, I think having that intermediary, so the concrete company doesn't have to be the one that is just like fully on the hook for like, we mm-hmm. don't know you know, how this guy is and how he's adjusting back to normal life. But right. give you an inter- intermediary that can actually give those guys a place to live so they can earn a paycheck and then go get an apartment. For you know what? You, you you hit on something that I just kind of had an epiphany. There's recruiting companies all over the country that recruit specific individuals for specific jobs, whether it be in government, tech, manufacturing, mm-hmm. whatever. Like, you just essentially hit on a different vein of, like, a recruiting operation where – I mean, you you take these guys that guys and you take these people, and you evaluate them, can vouch for them, and then you find them employment. That employer, with your guarantee, also gives you a kickback so you can continue that service. Oh yeah, and you oh you can, yeah you monetize can, yeah, yeah you continue giving whatever this company or companies may be, whether they're in manufacturing, construction. Mm-hmm surveying whatever you can you can promise them or you can guarantee them consistent loyal and accountable employees Mm -hmm. yes they may have a record but like me this company we can vouch for these people you can rely on them and count on them Mm -hmm. their salary is x you give us five percent of their salary 95 percent of the salary to them and then i can continue to fund this service that i'm giving to you yeah operated almost like a temp agency yeah yeah 
no, yeah, that's great. Actually, how many business ideas have we come up with on this podcast? <laughs> We've come know. up with a few, actually. <laughs> well, for our listeners out there, if you ever go to download the Ad 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast and it is no longer available, that means one of these business ideas hit. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I think that's a pretty good segue into, into our guest. Who we got today, Josh? Yeah, speaking of businesses that hit, we have Richard Stone on the podcast here today. He is a project executive at Madison Concrete Construction. Uh, Madison Concrete is around the Delaware Valley area in Pennsylvania. Let's call it Philly. For those people who aren't familiar with the area, they are around Philly, and they build large things. <laughs> they, they can they can do a lot of turnkey commercial construction, as you know, ex- excavation, backfill, concrete foundation, slab on grade, slab on deck, concrete pumping. You know, you name it. But we get into the weeds pretty good here with Rick Stone, and he talks about supply chain management. And he talks about employment. We get into a pretty good conversation about unions because, I mean, obviously, if you operate in that area of the country, you need to use union labor for some jobs. So we hold his feet to the fire, and he gives us pros and cons. And and I tell him, I was like, I bring the heat when it comes to the unions. And he, <laughs> yeah, that's one he, of our source spots. <laughs> yeah. So he, he, uh, he really gives the other side of – of that conversation and like you know he he shoots you straight too he says there's pros and cons to it for sure that's cool um we talk about shotcrete we talk about um how they're utilizing that where in the past they they wouldn't have used that application um and it was a pretty good conversation with a true construction guy and how do you know he's a true construction guy he gave this interview from his car on the side of the road that's number two now <laughs> yeah yeah second guy to do that that was great i appreciate you guys uh doing that interview while i was out I'm really looking forward to seeing it or hearing it. Yep, yep. Well, we'll get right into it. This is Rick Stone. Y'all enjoy. All right, everybody. Welcome in to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We have a genuine OG concrete guy on the podcast today, so we're going to swap war stories and talk about everything right and wrong with the industry. Uh, But we got Rick Stone on the podcast today. Rick, how's it going? It's going pretty good. It's a sunny, sunny Friday morning, so we're all good. Heard that. And, and in true Concrete Guy fashion, he's taking this interview from the seat of his vehicle on the side of the road. So we we appreciate That is on brand, sir. We appreciate you. <laughs> yeah, Josh and I were talking that uh, these these legit Concrete people, they don't take these podcasts from the, the desk because the desk covered it's probably covered in dust or they probably don't even have one. They uh, They take it from the road or at the – plant or just wherever that is true for for our audience purposes we we met at the aci this year and and got to talking a little bit but for the audience let them know a little bit about who you are uh, who you work for and and really what got you to this point in the industry from when i first came to madison we were a 20 million dollar a year company doing a lot of uh steel frame metal buildings slab on metal deck we made a commitment as a goal in our strategic planning to try to become a uh structural concrete contractor, which is exactly what we did. We've been a $220 million company and we've been a $20 million company uh, on the backside uh, within a three-year period. So we kind of know the ups and downs. Right now we're cruising along at about maybe $80 million a year volume. And we pour the concrete, finish it, strip the forms, and hopefully submit uh, to get paid. That, that's kind of the world we live in right now. Speaking of the world we live in right now, um, I would imagine that that industry is has changed quite a bit or, or had to endure quite a lot over the last couple of years with uh, how COVID has been, 
supply chain shortages, and then coming out of that, you're looking on the horizon. And depending on which area of the country you're in, I mean, some people have jobs that are planned out three, four years, and other places, those larger civil jobs, the planning has kind of slowed or, or even stopped in some areas. So can you give us a, uh, I guess, a quick synopsis of, of how that industry is in, in the mid-Atlantic region where you're at? Well, we were coming off a pretty good year where in August of 2019, we had a headcount of like maybe 300 guys. Uh, we're a union company, so we can basically add and subtract from our workforce pretty easily just with a phone call. But uh, we were getting a little bit slow at that point, and our headcount had dropped below 100. And But we had a couple of big projects on the hook. And uh, when the pandemic hit, we had maybe five smaller projects going. Three of them were hospital and one was a hospitality, a gaming, a casino project. And they all got uh, waivers from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to continue working. So when the pandemic hit, we didn't find ourselves in a situation where we were shedding labor uh, because it kind of happened at a, a, almost a convenient time. Um, that's not to say that we didn't have trouble getting paid or, or outstanding. Um, we, we had a lot of money out on the street. When it hit, we did get a PPP loan. Uh, because essentially it, a, a lot of payments just weren't coming in uh, and we needed a little bit of a bridge. So we had that uh, within a year coming out into looking at August 2020, we were back uh, about 102. And then in January 2021, it's like all of a sudden the sky opened up and all this work that had been kind of pending hit. And we grew within a period of two months to a headcount of over 450. And we're cruising along at about 400 right now. Uh, and that's working really, I, I guess, five major structural concrete jobs and then a few other smaller um, jobs that are a little bit lower to the ground. Uh, but that uh, it, it was a surprise what happened with the material costs. And in particular, I mean, you guys are, are totally informed on the, the commodity that cement is and the price changes that happened with that, especially as the volume of construction exploded really you know, starting January 2021. Uh, and cement started to become very difficult to come by, but also reinforcing steel went probably increased if you it took a snapshot from 2018 to really first quarter 2022. It went up you know, maybe 60%. And uh, it has come down a little bit, but we were just looking at a project that we had budgeted about three years ago and it was remarkable. Well, actually, we had budgeted in the first quarter of 2021, and it was remarkable, uh, even though they added, I guess, about 900 tons of reinforcing steel, the price of concrete has increased, but the price of steel went down. It netted to zero. Uh, so it, it's kind of strange how things are working. If you had asked me that question four months ago, it would have been, you know, we're paying a ridiculous amount for steel. And with all the planned price increases that all our suppliers were telling us, we were looking at having to go back to our clients with our hat in our hand saying, here's what has happened. Here's a snapshot. And, and everybody knows, just read, you know, read the Wall Street Journal, read the New York Times. You will see that these commodity materials, the price increases are real. And for an owner or a developer or whatever to expect us to swallow those, those escalations, it, it's just not reasonable. So it's been really tough selling that aspect of escalation to our clients uh, in, where it's appropriate. There's others that are readily accepting the fact that, hey, you know, the price of reinforcing went up dramatically. We're, we're doing one job now. We're topping it out next week. 
32 stories, the steel supplier on that project, he must shed a massive amount of tears with every truckload that leaves his yard headed for that job site because he agreed to honor his pre-pandemic price. That's pretty remarkable. But we do a lot of business with this guy and he knows how to make up ground. Every time he he books a loss, he makes sure he he gets a, a couple of wins. In other words, he may give up a big kickoff return, but holy cow, he's going to get a lot of first downs and get back in his in the other end zone. Yeah, I hear you. Well, and we've covered this on the podcast, uh, both in the current event section that we do and with guests as well. But can you, can, can you talk about the legal side of some of these large, large civil steel projects is are there riders in contracts that cover price increases um, that kind of dictate who takes the loss or who has the honor what price or does it vary on on each job you go to it varies by job and it varies by client and how they they like to write contracts there's some we we try not to do a lot of like out and out bid to award work we try really to try to get with our clients and and their clients in other words an owner a developer or an institution and work with them to develop a project and there we have a lot of success with hey I don't think we're going to be able to get in the ground until, you know, let's just pick it July 2023. Uh, we can kind of crystal ball our way to say, well, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, 85,000 yards of concrete on this job and 3,200 tons of reinforcing steel. Let's try to you know, play with this to see where the numbers might go. And the example I just gave you about a job that we budgeted where steel went down, concrete went up. Sometimes that happens. It's really risky when they both go in the same direction, which is up. Uh, that's where a lot of conversation needs to happen because they're not, we're all in this to make money. We're all in it. It's a business. There's no charity involved here. Although we do do a fair amount of pro bono work for Habitat for Humanity and various church and civic organizations. But nonetheless, they don't want to see us go belly up as much as we want to want to crucify them. So in some cases, we're successful in negotiating in others. And we have a large project now. It, was a 40, it is a $40 million concrete frame building in downtown Philadelphia that the developer kind of sensed looking at interest rates. He had a financing package. His lender came back to him about two weeks ago and said, hey, you know what? Um, we need you to offer up, put, it, put up more cash for this, this project. Uh, you need to have your own equi- level of equity in it. And the developer is out of New York City. He said, well, uh, I don't have that right now. And I can't essentially use other projects right now that I've done, that I've completed, that are generating cash as collateral because they're all collateral for the last project I did. And uh, that situation, they knew there was a potential that that would happen. And when we were developing the contract, uh, construction manager built in a 120-day kind of shutdown agreement. In other words, at any point in the project, they could shut it down for 120 days. And there was some language included in that contract that allows for escalations that might happen in that four-month period. And that that's a sign of, like, it, it, that's just wisdom happening there. That That's a developer who knows the risks and a construction manager who understands the risks working with a specialty contractor who, who would be the one really experiencing the risk. Uh, so yes, you can have success. In other cases, we've been beaten down, but I, I give you the example of that steel fabricator that uh, is weeping. Um, there was no escalations built into that. So he agreed to live by his price, which 
yeah, again, it's probably maybe 60% of what he would want to charge right now. So there are successes and failures, and it kind of depends on the culture of our client, which would be a general contractor construction manager, and their relationship and culture with a, their client, which would be a developer, or owner, or institution. Rick, what's the cement situation around there? I mean, I think it's common across the country <laughs> right now that uh, it's a uh, it's a shortage, uh, but I think every just every region just has a different either reason or or something different about their situation. I know up in the up in the Pacific Northwest, I know a couple of guys that work for a cement supplier up there. They were actually buying cement from a competitor to supply their own customers, you know, just to you know just to keep them in cement. And then down here in Nashville, we got ready mix guys that are getting allocated a load a day, you know, which isn't anything for a large ready mix guy. So I was just curious what your situation was around there. Oh, it, we have really um, one go-to ready mix guy and uh, then three others that we use for various other reasons. And some of it relates to labor that our, our number one ready mix guys, Action Concrete in uh, just outside Philadelphia. Again, it's a three-generation family-owned business. Ernesto Forlini uh, is the grandson now running the business. He has been successful in buying cement. You know, we obviously we have uh, Lafarge Holson right up the road in Allentown, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, the Port of Baltimore, the Port of Bayonne. They're all convenient locations where you can pick up cement. And he's been successful in that. There's other guys that are jumping everywhere to try to find cement. And, and I'll speak to that in a second because it can have an issue. There's one entity here. It's uh, Sylvie Concrete, which I'm, I'm sure you guys have bumped into all these guys at one time or another. I was speaking to one of their sales managers two days ago, and he said, you know, they're calling, people are calling me from all over the country wanting to buy cement because they have, I, I believe they import from Spain or Portugal um, and or Greece, and they have, uh, they have purchased their own pier and wharf facilities. They have storage systems and they have they own barges and so they're basically they they're controlling every aspect of the product and they can supply themselves and then they can supply you know they, they'll sell cement but it is remarkable he said you, we used to get calls from people no more than maybe 100 miles away now we're getting calls from you know 700 800 a thousand miles away wow. they're just trying to get cement so i understand that it is is difficult we haven't necessarily seen it except one ready mix supplier that we use and i'm not going to going to name them they're grabbing cement wherever they can. And the catch is they might get type one, you know, today, tomorrow, all they can get is type one L. Uh, and then, you know, they're back to type one, but they're getting it from different plants. And you know that the cements, they all, they all react pretty much the same, but there's some subtle differences. And our guys in the field can almost tell you when, holy cow, you know, where did they get this load, this cement? You know, th this is just not cool. So we have seen, that is an issue. Now it comes to four when we poured a, a big, I guess it was about a 4,000 cubic yard mat foundation in August of uh, 21. And our go-to guy action, he has like 25 trucks and, you know, he can probably crank out between his two plants, 12, a thousand yards an hour, but you can't truck it there that quick. But just to try to get it in as quickly as we could, we went to one and two other suppliers and wouldn't you know, we had a little bit of a temperature problem in one section of the mat. The design professional required cores, so they came out and drilled 10-foot, I guess 
12 10 foot long cores shipped them off to west janney elsner and uh and then the scientist that was they broke them the strengths were fine the scientist was doing a petrographic and chemical analysis on them she called me and said can you can you send me the mix designs for this and in particular i'd really like to see the mill certificates for the, the cement now ready mix guys in, in my experience usually just reach into a file cabinet and grab uh, a <laughs> mill certificate and it might be dated 2012 and you know i've kind of trained up our project managers to sniff that one out uh because engineers have rejected mixed designs where the information is like 10 years old but lo and behold what we found out was where uh action was using type one uh one other guy was using type 1l and you know i, I once i saw that i called the, the young lady back the scientist said what it, what what are you looking for here are you looking to see if there's some type 1l in here she said how did you know so it, it was curious how that she was able to find out working backwards from the hardened samples under a microscope well you know and that came as a surprise to us because the project manager said boy when the engineer the design professional finds out about this they're going to have a heart attack well they didn't have a heart attack because the strength was fine at the end of the day the scientist said uh, there's no potential here because you had so much slag in the mix no potential for uh, alkali silica reaction or delayed etronite formation. This is perfectly good concrete. So they should be paid for their material. But it was just curious how that crept in there. Um, so right now it seems like we're having a little Russian roulette. Another anecdote I can give you, we're pouring a, uh, it's a casino project in Bethlehem, PA. A, I guess it was level seven of a 20 story uh, hotel building cast, cast in place post tension and loads 10 through 50 went in, you know, in a section around the elevator core, and then they moved the hose to go into the elevator lobby with loads 60 and 70. By the 10 minutes later, when they came back out, loads 40 and 50 had flash set. And I mean, it was kind of hysterical because the hose had been laying in it. They pulled the hose out of the pile of concrete and left a perfect impression of the hose. And you could not, you could, I have a photograph of a 350 pound cement mason and labor each standing on it and the concrete's hard as a rock. So what happened there? Well, you know, they're grabbing cement from everywhere they can. They got some high early concrete cement that got blown into the silo in addition to like two other cements. So that's an example of when you're grabbing for cement just to serve your clients, sometimes things can go south. Yeah, we're we're seeing we're seeing a little bit of that from all over the country. In some parts, they've they've gone to just one L completely, and they're seeing pros and cons of that. But you touched on something that was interesting when talking about that one L mix. You said that there was enough slag in there, where it kind of mitigated any any future issues that you might have encountered with the one L. Uh, speaking to the slag situation, that's different all around the country as well. What's your slag situation like there in, in the the Mid Atlantic? Well, everybody's buying it from uh, Wholesome down in Baltimore, and right now it's available, but I'm told that it will, you know, in the next three or four years, it's going to get harder and harder to come by. Uh, just like fly ashes has become a lot more difficult to obtain because the coal-fired plants are, uh, I guess, you know, if uh, the senator from West Virginia has his way, we, that will, we, we would continue to have a supply of fly ash. But in our particular region, fly ash is not that readily available. But uh, I guess maybe 20 years ago, the operations director at Madison put forth an edict that uh, thou shalt not include slag in any mix for flat work because he was looking at uh, when we first introduced slag into concrete mixes, he was seeing that, especially in the wintertime, I got cement masons out on that slab until, you know, one o'clock in the morning. 
And the reason why is the slag and, uh, you know, completely ignoring the fact that, uh, you know, it was pretty cold and, you know, it's cold weather concrete. Gradually, the slag started creeping back in as the Green Building Initiative built up steam. And we figured out, our guys figured out how to finish it. The beauty about slag is for a long time, it was less expensive than Portland cement. So it was a great way for a ready mix guy to, to make a dollar. But it also had tremendous benefits. And especially for MCI had this goofy limit of 150 degrees for the maximum internal temperature of a mass concrete pour. And that was just a bad conversion from some research done in the 30s in France in on some dam projects and uh, various academics began to study it and long story short in the state of Florida you can go up to like 188 degrees um, as long as you include other things in the mix to mitigate any potential for ASR or DEF and gradually ACI seems to be headed in that direction and the editing notes if an ACI 301 specifications for concrete uh, now includes in the uh, optional checklist, uh, if there's mass concrete on the project, the design professional is obligated to identify it and what it is. And also it provides some, some suggestions that, you know, at that 150 that we used to have, you might want to go to 164 or maybe even higher, consult the literature and make your own decision because that's based on all the research that the Federal Highway Administration and various academics have done. Um, so that's why we like slag a lot because it does control the thermal effects. And you move it by four hot because you get all, all kinds of bad things happening, especially as it cools down when you get differential um, thermal. The, the surface cools a lot faster than the center. That's when you can get cracking that uh, you know, usually people have a problem with cracks. But we find slag has done a great job. So we've become a great believer in slag, aside from the fact that it checks off a box for lead points um, that, that you know, is usually desired by you know, owners and architects. So we love slag, but I just am not sure how much longer it's going to remain available. I hear you. It's it's funny you you say that down in Florida they figured out a way to to pour even at you know one sixty seventy one eighty. That just reminds me of one of my favorite sayings, and that is, you'd be amazed at what you can do when you have to. Yeah. It's funny how all those provisions seem to benefit the region in which they were they were being tested and and uh, you know worked with, but. Uh, to, to that regard, I mean, you know, we, we met at ACI this year, um, and, you know, there's pros and cons to going to committee meetings like that. You, you tend to discuss more about terminology and legality of, of the way things are written, but every once in a while you, you stumble across uh, an initiative that's being driven within the industry. So, you know, just from your point of view, which is way different than what Joey and I's point of view was when we went to ACI, because we're looking at, we're in different committees, we're looking at things from a completely different perspective. Uh, when you go to a committee meetings like that, what are you looking for? What what piques your interest, and what were you able to take away from this year's meetings uh, in the winter? Well, the one thing that I, I am really interested in is ACI 117, which is a committee on tolerances. It writes the specification for tolerances, which works it well with ACI 301, the specification for concrete, because the gener the genesis of the tolerance requirements in that document were back in like 1962, a bunch of guys went to a convention, um, sat around a table and said, gee whiz, we really need, uh, we need some kind of a standard for tolerances. And, and then you're like, well, gee whiz, how, you know, what can we build? Well, what do you think we can build uh, 
a wall on top of a foundation too. Um, you know, do we get it right every time? Well, I don't know. Some, you know, the guy pulls a tape measure, puts down a, a, a line, then he builds a formwork to that inch. How about an inch? And they all agree. They vote. Okay. We're going to make an inch the tolerance for location of a wall or a column in plan at the foundation. And, and that's, it can be anywhere an inch plus or minus from where it's supposed to be on the drawings. And they, they kind of followed that logic. How plumb should a wall be? How plumb should a 20-story building be? And they, they kind of made stuff up. And this is really of interest to me because we keep getting tripped up by situations where, um, well, you know, that, that thing's not in the right place. And, and that's not the case. It's, it's more, it, it's in close to the right place within tolerance. So there should be no problem. Um, so please pass because it, it, it's correct. But on the other hand, there are cases where we blow the tolerances. And I'll use like the building we're topping off next week uh, just a survey landed on my desk on monday where they brought a surveyor out to, to measure the elevator core floor by floor to find out where it is and lo and behold we're out at like levels 23 to 26 there's one section of the wall that's out it's it, from four and a half to five and a half inches and then it comes back and, and that's okay uh that's maybe not great but when you evaluate that in the framework of aci tolerances just barely out of tolerance. So the point I'm trying to make is that's one thing that I really am interested in because we're trying to change those, some of those tolerances to refine them. And the whole issue of floor flatness and levelness, I mean, you got the two rock stars of floor construction in America, Eldon Tipping and Alan Face. They came up with, you know, 40 years ago, a statistical way to evaluate floors. It's getting misused left and right and trying to help work on that committee to try to help the industry make it better, make make the tolerance easier to understand and easier to apply. That That's the kind of things that, that I was really interested this time. Aside from the whole aspect of uh, Jim Casilio at um, the Pennsylvania Aggregates uh, Board dragged my butt down there to give a presentation on responsibility in concrete construction, specifically with regard to green building, in other words, lead um, carbon footprint reduction. And that's something that, you know, without realizing it, we are really plugged into because it's something that we see throughout every project now. And the bar has been getting raised every year since about 2005, the first time we really bumped into green building initiative requirements. In other words, you have to have so much recycled material, local material, stuff that's not going to kill you material, like in other words, no VOC. So those are the things I went to Dallas really with an, an interest in exploring. And yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I kind of fulfilled each of my I checked the boxes with what I wanted to achieve at that conference. Do you think ACI really struggles with keeping up with, you know, let's just say tolerances and some of these other, you know, regulations that they set because one, you know, the industry is the way it is. Uh, Jim Casilio is the one that called the industry. We're a bunch of inbred elephants. Uh, we do the same thing. We never forget uh, for years and years and years. Uh, uh, he said that on the show uh, several, several episodes ago. But anyway... I think, you know, does ACI, do you think they just struggle with updating all of these regulations and these tolerances because of, like I said, the way the industry is and also just the advancement of technology? It seems like year after year after year, there's, there is technology coming on board that is dramatically changing how we place and produce concrete. Well, it's interesting you say that because just within the tolerance realm alone, laser scanning didn't exist, you know, 15 years ago. Now, basically, Committee 117 is going to kind of have to rewrite the playbook with that usable as a tool. 
the problem is laser scanning does not have an ASTM standard yet that can be used to apply it. Let's put it this way. Uh, there's an ASTM standard for when a surveyor goes out just with a plain old you know, dumpy level and a steel chain. That's been standardized. So they know like what the uh, what the standard deviation of it. You get five guys, you have five guys come out with their chains. They know what the, essentially the, how much difference it's going to be tape to tape and guy to guy. And so they've been able to write a standard around that. Laser scanning, they haven't. And that's part of the problem. And I think you just hit upon it. Some of the technology is coming out and the industry recognizes that this could be really, really helpful, but there's nothing to really use as a legitimate yardstick yet. Another example is there's a system iCrete, which you guys may have heard of. Basically, it's a continuous measurement of the moisture content in your sand and stone. And they came out and mounted their system on one of the plants for Clayton, uh, Ralph Clayton and Sons Ready Mix. This is back in 2003. And it was billed as the greatest thing since sliced bread. But we just didn't really know how to apply it. And we wound up telling them to take it off and, and make it go away because it was slowing down the batching. And that was, again, a project where we were doing, I guess it was 52 stories. There were huge floor plates. We couldn't slow down the bat the the concrete business or the concrete operation just to use this this technology. Um, I'm sure they've improved it by now, but that, that's something that the industry is always fighting. These new technologies, we can't quite figure out how to apply them. With regard to ACI itself, it can move like a glacier. Um, you sit in some committee meetings and these guys are arguing over whether you need a period after the uh, sentence or it should be a comma. Uh, I mean, literally, they get down to that level of, of detail in the grain and it's not really furthering what, what the mission is. Or you get one one subset of people who uh, think something should be one way and then a whole other group that wants it to be another way. And everybody has their reasons. And, and I'm on the pre-stress committee and for a long time, let's put it this way, for the last four years, the pre-stress committee or post-tension committee has been arguing about how thick the uh, sheathing is supposed to be around a, a post-tensioning tendon. The, the sheathing's there to keep it, so you can put grease in and keep it friction-free, but also to protect it. And the problem is the, all the, the academic guys are saying, well, what we have out there now isn't thick enough. It needs to be thicker. And all the manufacturing guys are saying, no way. Our tooling has been set up for 0.06 inch thickness. If you're telling us we got to go to 0.07, we are going to go out of business. So that's an issue also that it's not necessarily technology, but it's the knowledge bases it develops. And these academics may say, well, uh, a thicker sheathing will protect the tendon. But you know, the, the practical side is that would cost way too much. And, and there's a lot of that struggle that goes on in every committee. Yeah, I think, and that's one thing that Josh and I noticed when we were at ACI, just the kind of the disconnect from academia, who are extremely smart people in those rooms. But there is just, I just don't feel that they have the knowledge of what, most of them don't have the knowledge about what goes on on site. It's funny because uh, we had a meeting internally at our company at AMI involving Actigel and another, it's a new market or a new concrete kind of process for us. You know, Paul, Josh, and I don't know much about. Josh is uh, starting to brush up on it and taking the lead on getting a couple of tests started and lab tests and everything else. And uh, we got some lab results back, and we didn't really know exactly how to interpret them. But it basically came down to towards the end of the meeting, we were like, well, we need to go get on site 
at where this, you know, concrete, this particular concrete is getting used and see it get put in the ground or, you know, see how they do it out there and what their pains are and what they struggle with. I totally agree with that concept because I wouldn't know, let's put it this way, my understanding of ready-mixed concrete, the proportions, and then just every step along the way that, you know, design, I spent 17 years designing buildings. I had no idea. I mean, it kind of had an inkling or something, some imagination, but having spent time with ready-mix guys in their plant, watching them batch, uh, you know, we're putting 400 yards in for a slab starting at 6 a.m., show up at the plant at 5 o'clock and see what they do to start that process rolling, and you get a much better feel for what's actually happening. And then it, it, just the whole aspect of, you know, I've had some very good teachers, Dean Melchior at Action Concrete, Ernie Ferlini, Dave Michalski at JDM. They will show me by making a couple trial batches, you know, this is what, what's going on here. And let's, let's play with when Viscocrete 2100 from Sika first came out, we were like, hmm, what can we do with this? And by standing with them, playing around with a couple different batches, totally educated what's going on. That immersion is really key. And I think every every construction professional that deals with concrete needs to spend some time at a batch plant because holy cow, once you lift the lid of that Pandora's box, you start to understand that it is the only material that arrives on site in an incomplete form altogether. Yeah, and vice versa. I think there's there are plenty of plant guys that need to spend a day or two out on the job site and uh, wondering and wonder why they get those phone calls from uh, those finishers and those foremen uh, hollering at them through the phone about what you know what's going wrong and everything else and just see it from their from their point of view for sure yeah and, and going back to our you know the point that brought us to that topic was I, I guess what we can agree on is a lot of the and we're not just picking on ACI here but a lot of these committees they tend to be one-sided they tend to be um, more more PhD <laughs> lab technician based guys, you know, who, you know, their job is to research and, and to write white papers and to provide data to the industry. And, and there is certainly a, uh, an advantage to having those people within the industry and they do a great job, but you need to have a proper ratio between those guys and Rick and those guys and the guys that, that supply Rick um, and the people that we were talking about who learn through immersion um, you can learn. I mean, if those guys go into a lab, they'll learn. And, and what Rick was just talking about, how when when 2100 came on the market, you kind of play with it and you learn it. You can learn it in a lab, but what you have in a lab doesn't necessarily uh, translate into the field and vice versa. Um, so I, I feel like a lot of these committees would be better to have just just strive to have a proper ratio of field guys and lab guys, because I mean, the, the thing about humans in general is, is not only are we flawed, we're also extremely unique, right? So if you get 10 guys in a room who are all, relatively speaking, just as smart as one another, you're going to have a couple guys with more conviction than the others, and you're going to have a couple guys that are just a little bit more persuasive. And eventually, over time, they're going to rule the room, and you're going to have eight guys who are just as smart, and they might not completely agree, but they also either don't have the conviction or don't have the drive or desire to kind of argue with those two guys that end up leading the conversation and, and it kind of turns into this hierarchy. And if you don't bring in new guys from different parts of the industry, that hierarchy is never going to change and those, those standards are going to be written how those, guys, how those two guys want to write them 
And the rest of the industry has to deal with that. So until you can break that cycle, you know, we're going to be complaining about the same elements of these committee meetings for the rest of time. So how you break that cycle, uh, I don't know, man. I'm not – I'm one of those eight guys that sit in the room and just listen. So I'm not <laughs> I'm not going to be the one to, to, to really speak up. But um, with all that being said, Rick, I mean, what do you agree with about that? What do you disagree? And how do we break that cycle? Well, it, the ACI's committee – as it were, the Bible, the manual, basically says that committees must have balance just for the reasons you, you described. And, and it's just in my experience on the pre-stress committee, yeah, for a while, the PhDs were kind of ruling the roost and it, it, was, uh, it, it, it was caused a lot of conflict and nothing really productive got done. Uh, but going back, I'll go back 20 years, there was a guy named Morris Schupach who was uh, really well-known engineer especially for parking structures and he has some crazy ideas but he was very very affordable and they got actually written into some of the documents now over time that's kind of been walked back as balance and less run the committee but on the other hand more more shupak had some awesome ideas and very passionately presented them and uh it's for the good in terms of it, it actually is up to the committee chairman to make sure that he can establish balance. The committee chairs, on the other hand, usually are there only for three or four years at, at most. So sometimes they have a hard time controlling the, uh, shall we say, the roster. But it's a valid point, And everybody at ACI knows it because there's some committees that are you know, heavily skewed one way or another. And, and that's what uh, it, it is their mission to make sure that it people follow the, the technical activities guidelines to make sure that the proper mix of individuals is, is presented. Right. Yeah, I give a lot of credit to the American Shotcrete Association. We've been members of that association for a decade now, I think. And I go to the, I used to go to the committee meetings twice a year. They would meet the weekend before ACI in the spring and the fall. I was able to go to the one in Dallas uh, this year after being gone for a couple of years. And a lot of credit goes to them because they have a lot of guys in that association in leadership positions that are nozzlemen and or have been nozzlemen and have have grown to own their own companies but they've spent their time in the field and then there there's another uh, handful of guys that maybe deal a lot with the equipment uh, either parts or pumps or whatever and there's a couple other guys uh, kind of like us material suppliers uh, they kind of bounce around and see a lot of shotcrete all over the country. And you got a couple engineers in there, and there's a couple of academia, uh, academic guys in there. But the vast majority of that association are field guys. You know, they fly in on Friday night. They probably either shot a wall, helped shoot a wall. They were, they look like, uh, they just look like a man made out of concrete from rebound, you know, maybe the day before. But then Saturday rolls up, they throw on a, a blazer and a pair of slacks. And uh, they've done some great things for the shotcrete industry. But, yeah, kudos to them for having a lot of field guys uh, making decisions there. Uh, it, American Concrete Pumping Association, same thing. I think it is more dominated, really, by suppliers and contractors. Uh, there's not much academia there. And they reached out to – I'm on the uh, American Society of Concrete Contractors Safety Risk Management Council – they reached out to us because somebody got the brilliant idea that the guy on the end of the hose needs to have a certification. And they, they asked us to participate 
And what resulted was, you know, wait a minute. Usually your you, two prerequisites for that are, number one, that you have the, the appropriate PPE on, but you'll be big and strong enough to be able to handle the hose. Beyond that, there's not a lot of knowledge. They were kind of aghast at that, but we said, but there's more to it than, than just the nozzle man. Why don't you consider developing a certification for really you know, a pump operator? Okay, he has to have a CDL. He has to know how to operate the pump. But, you know, what, where are the accidents? This was from a safety aspect. What goes wrong with the pump? Well, the guy gets hit by the hose. No, he, the hose, he's hitting the hose. It's pipe failures, tipping the machine over. We zeroed in on just the activity from the pump to the end of the hose. Is there a need for a certification there? And the answer is probably. But it's also, and this, you know, I, I don't know if I'll get in trouble for this, but we have a lot of trouble with specifications that require a certification for cement masons. In other words, all flatwork finishers shall be ACI level two certified floor technicians. And, you know, you know okay, fine. We don't have a single one, but every one of our cement masons has been through a certification process as an apprentice when they joined the union. And it's actually superior to what the course in the exam you have to take. So please just go away with that. And, and the whole issue of certification, somebody said, so I have to pay somebody now to administer a test and train this guy. Why? I mean, because he's, he's, he should be grandfathered in. He knows how to do it. it that's a whole nother area. And I guess I'm getting a little off topic on that. But the, the whole issue of certification, so there's some things that are legit and some that are really just too obvious that it's not necessary. I mean, I guess that's a little off topic, but no, you're, you're being like, right on brand. And we talk about that all the time is like, not all certifications mean the same and, you know, don't, don't handcuff the industry in legalities and paperwork and certifications where it, it actually works as a detriment to the industry because it, re it increases the barrier to entry so much that, you know, you're looking at these crews that can't employ a full crew as it is. So why would you turn around a guy that's more than capable of doing the work, but he just doesn't have the right fancy piece of paper? I think on the flip side, seeing things through the American Shock Creek Association and their nozzleman certification, I think maybe, you know, a company that has, you know, they can list they, that they have a certified nozzleman when they're putting in a bid for a project. And maybe they, maybe they charge a premium for having that certified nozzleman on site. And maybe that certified nozzleman, maybe having that listed is winning them more jobs. And it's more or less, you know, just, just something to have, just like a badge of honor, I guess. Would you rather have this guy that's been through, you know, XYZ certification and he's been trained by the best shot creep people in the world or, you know, this other company who probably does just as good a job they don't have the paperwork to show for it. Um, so I don't know. It's just kind of, I guess, being somewhat of a devil's advocate right there. It, it's funny you mention that because we're just stumbling into this now. We are just beginning to do shotcrete. And we're not, it's not like we're out looking to sell that as a real service. It's really, uh, we have a 30-foot tall basement wall uh, up against existing an existing building that uh, we can't use single-sided forms. It's got waterproofing, so we can't tie to it. Uh, I guess three years ago, we brought down Patriot uh, out of New York City and uh, watched them like a bunch of young artists studying their first Picasso. I mean, these guys knew what they were doing. And 
in the process, a couple of, of one, two cement masons and one laborer said, yeah, I've done shotcrete before. And as it turns out, the one laborer, he spent 10 years doing, I guess, wet shockery gunite pools in California. And we put him in, in the crew, with, in Patriot's crew, and damned if he didn't know exactly how we had the same problem existing basement. Well, our answer is shockrete. I don't agree with it, but that's what the, the, the higher-ups want to have. Um, and the design professional said, well, they have to be an ACI-certified nozzleman. And so you go dig in ACI, and what you find out is there's a sentence or a paragraph in there that says there's no formal certification for uh, an ACI nozzleman, but they should have, I guess, uh, 1,400 hours experience and pass a written examination and, and something to that effect. And it ties in with International Building Code as, I guess, similar language. But anyway, so we trot this young man, is Keith Molino, you know, Yes, he probably has 2,500 hours of, of nozzle experience. Um, and he wouldn't have that if he didn't know how to do it. And, and I think that's a premise that, that we stumble into. You really do know have to know what you're doing when you're holding that shotcrete nozzle uh, to get anything close to the quality that, that the designers are, are, are requesting. Um, but you know, written certification might be a little bit of a problem for us on that one. But again, we're just learning how to do shockery. We are real rookies. Uh, Patriot did the first one for us. Then we've probably done another 8,000 square feet of varying thickness of wall. Does that mean we're qualified? Oh, I, don't, I don't know, but um, we tell people we are. Rick, we talk a lot about certifications and we talk about training and we talk about hours and we talk about the pros and cons of having experienced workers and how hard it is to find experienced workers. But um, I want to bring this back to a topic that we talk about a lot on this show. And and I have to admit that I give them a lot of heat. I give unions in general a lot of heat. Um, but you're in the middle of union country. You have union laborers. As candidly as you can, talk about the pros and cons of having a union labor workforce. It's twofold. You know, Josh, we have some of our clients require union or organized trades on their construction projects. And for example, if there's a health system building a hospital and that hospital, uh, the entire nursing staff is signatory to uh, some collective bargaining agreement, um, the maintenance staff, um, in that situation, a developer is almost obligated to use union labor because again, it's, it's one for all, all, all for one. I was at a Christmas party before pandemic and my wife had gone to college with the CEO of a health system here in the, you know, the mid Atlantic region. And they're still very good friends. And uh, he was at the same party and we started chatting and he said, yeah, I hear you guys are doing the concrete on the addition we're doing. Um, and then he got really this dark look on his face. And he, he said, if I was building this in Texas, it would cost two thirds of what it's costing me here. And all I could do is shrug my shoulders and say, well, but, um, you know, sorry, uh, that's kind of the way it goes. But we started to delve into the differences that he sees as a really a national entity. And he summed up, and, and these would be the points that I would make, it's a ready workforce that is skilled and trained because each of the members are obligated to have certain training every year. You know, the, the, almost all of them have an OSHA 30, which is key. Some have OSHA 10s, but there's some clients that we work for that will not allow anybody on site without an OSHA 30. It's also a flexible workforce. 
uh, and like I said, you know, we've been we've been 100, we've been 400. Uh, within a, a nine-month period, we have that ability to hire and fire. And, and from a safety point of view, uh, it, it just it's imbued from day one as an apprentice uh, that safety is paramount to anything else. And, and so we see those as, as advantages. The disadvantages are it's expensive. It's extremely expensive. And it's not real portable. In other words, there's not many union guys that will travel. Well, I, I take that back. For our, a lot of our iron workers, uh, when the iron worker, I'm talking reinforcing steel iron workers, when it's really busy, there's not enough bodies to go around. So all of a sudden, you'll see a crew of guys that, that talk kind of funny because they come from New Orleans uh, show up on a job site. So, but that's also an advantage because the, and I'll use the iron workers as an example. When they know that the hall is almost empty, they can reach out to other areas and bring in import skilled mechanics and journeymen. And, and that's a key. Again, the downside is cost. Uh, we have a, uh, a neighbor uh, across the valley from us that's open shop. And we, we have a great relationship with them. They are similar to third generation family business. They just happen to have made the decision back in the 60s to, to go open shop. They hire and fire. And oftentimes, if they have good guys they've had for three or four years, they get slow, they fire, and they can't get them back. Whereas in a trade organization, we can. Oftentimes, we can find out where you know Joe Miles is working. We'll grab and call Joe, maybe even talk to his employer, and we can basically bring that skilled guy back because he's good at that. Whereas uh, foreseen concrete can't do that. Uh, but they have a market advantage in that even in a prevailing wage environment where, for example, a state highway project where it's mandated that the state pay a prevailing wage, we still can't because we get slaughtered with all the uh, you know, kind of the extra costs associated with a union employee. In other words, you're paying into their pension fund, you're paying. There's just some other costs that it just make it not necessarily competitive. But again, for example, our, our neighbor across the valley, Foreseen, they're doing like 800,000 square foot big box tilled up projects and they're very successful and they're making money. You know, we've done three tilled up jobs in the last five years. Uh, we borrow their lifting beams. Um, they've done two post-tension jobs in the last two years. They borrow, we send them an iron worker foreman and uh, a carpenter foreman to just try to you know, get the job started. And then we always, you know, let's put it this way, the phone rings with questions and and we kind of trade. And, and that's a great relationship to have with one of our open shop brethren, because we're really all in it for the same game. We want to see concrete as the material of choice in the mid-Atlantic region, whether it's union built or, or open shop built. That, that's about you know how I look at it. Uh, yes, the unions can be troublesome. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had to cross a picket line, but um, Jim Delaney Jr., uh, the president of Madison, uh, was on the bargaining committee with the General Building Contractors Association and the operating engineers uh, about four years ago. And uh, there's a dichotomy between what operating engineers get paid in the city versus what's paid in the five counties outside of it. And uh, you know, they, they basically wanted to level the field. Or no, he was arguing to try to lower the Philadelphia wages to match the five county area, and they hated him for it. So I showed up for work in the office one morning and there's a giant inflatable rat and about 60 guys pulling lawn chairs blocking the driveway. And I 
I, if I didn't know them by name, you know, you've, I've made so much money working on Madison jobs because I'm almost guaranteed to have two hours overtime every day if I'm running a tower crane. They said, this is just the way it is. So that can be a problem, and, and especially when it impedes the general project progress on a project. Um, so the way the unions go about their work, okay, you know, about being unions can be a little troublesome. But on, at the end of the day, it's a symbiotic relationship. We get quality, trained, good people for the most part. Uh, and you know, we employ them and, and give them opportunities to uh, you know, make a, a decent wage, make a lot of money. On the other hand, and, and we have this problem right now because really good concrete carpenters are <clears throat> in short supply. We get a lot of drywall guys that don't like to work outside in the heat or when it's 20 degrees and blowing 10. Um, they're, they're not the best to have, but at least they're carpenters. They, 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 they know sort of what they're doing. So that's, that's my take on it. Man, that's, that's awesome. We really appreciate that insight. We don't get that kind of insight all the time here on the podcast. So anytime I get to talk to a guy that, that uh, has seen both sides of the coin there, we certainly appreciate the insight. Um, we'll get you out of here. We've, we've had you locked up for about an hour now, um, and we know your time's valuable. We certainly appreciate it. But before we let our guests go, we like to put them on the spot real quick and, and ask them this, this one question before we send them out the door. And I'm interested in your answer uh, because of all the experience you have in different elements. But uh, what is the craziest thing you've ever seen on the job site? Drug bust. Ah, good. And you, you do, you had that immediately. You had that one in the chamber. <laughs> we were just talking about this. Uh, um, we were building a federal detention center in Philadelphia, and it happened to be right next to the um, U.S. Treasury Federal Reserve Office Building. It, it was a twelve-story building. We we're up on like level eight, and our superintendent is in a trailer down on the street. And this is urban Philadelphia. At lunchtime one day. Uh, he gets a knock on the trailer door and a guy opens the door and looks in and goes, uh, you know, are, are you in charge here? And our, our superintendent, his name's Harry. Uh, he, he said, yeah, what's up? Are you alone? Uh, yeah, come on in. What, what's going on? And they were in suits and ties. They come in and there were four of them. One stood at each door so nobody else could come in. And the other two went in and said, um, yeah, they produce their badges. We're FBI agents. Uh, you, you know, our offices are right up there on the eighth floor of the reserve building. You know, we've been watching this project and boy, it's really fascinating. You know, I never knew that, that all these things had all these moving parts had to come in together and make a concrete building. But we also notice every day at lunch, there's a little uh, business going on up there on the deck. And uh, it's uh, essentially drug sales. And, and uh, Harry is completely nonplussed. Bullshit. <laughs> Pardon my French. Um, and they then proceeded to take him across the street into their office. They said, here's what's going to happen tomorrow. We're going to do a bust. You have to stay absolutely silent or we're going to hold you as an accessory to the crime. Um, and, and we're going to come up there. We're going to take these people away. Sure enough, lunchtime the next day, a whole SWAT crew comes swarming up the building, grabbed four guys who were selling and about eight guys that were buying. Now, it's not a great comment on the fact that we employed so many drug dealers and drug users, uh, but this was about maybe 15 years ago. And, and But that was like the damnedest thing when I saw that happen. As it turns out, five years later, one of the guys that had been arrested for buying 
tried to shoot one of his co-workers on the job, but he missed altogether from a distance of 20 feet. Because I don't know if you watch rap videos as he did, but he had his nine millimeter. And I guess this is how you, you, you shoot your nine by driving your hand forward <laughs> from a distance of about 25 feet. He missed the guy with eight shots. I mean, it was absolutely oh, stunning. Yeah. So there's, that, that's just some of the stuff that we've seen. Oh, goodness. I'm sure there's a joke about Philadelphia in there hidden somewhere, but I don't, I don't get political or, or throw anybody under the bus. So we'll, we'll keep it moving from there. <laughs> That was that was phenomenal, Rick. That was probably one of the better, uh, craziest things you've ever seen. Stories. We appreciate that, but uh, we'll let you get out of there with that because that's going to be hard to top anyway. So uh, we certainly appreciate your time, sir. I hope we get uh, get a chance to talk again in person uh, in the near future. Um, but if we don't before Christmas, y'all, you and your family uh, have a happy holiday, and and we'll talk to you soon. We certainly appreciate your time today. You got it. Thank you very much, Josh. Joe, have a great holiday. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. You too. Merry Christmas. All right, and that'll do it for this episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We appreciate you listening along with us and definitely appreciate Rick and all of the insight that he was able to bring from his corner of the world there around the Philadelphia region. Uh, This will be our last episode before Christmas and the New Year's holidays. So to all of our listeners out there, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year's, whatever you may celebrate and whomever you may celebrate it with, we hope it's a good one. And we'll see you back here in 2023 with uh, new episodes, new guests, new topics, and, and hopefully plenty of great content to keep you guys entertained. Um, We're also going to be out at the War of Concrete this year in January. The exhibits are January 17th through the 19th, so we'll be there with a camera and a microphone getting some content for you guys, uh, rolling out all of the cool new products and features and services that can be found at the War of Concrete, so we're definitely excited for that. Um, And in the meantime, follow us along on all of our social media pages. That's Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn. Tell a friend about us. Let them know that they can download this podcast anywhere they get their podcast by searching out Add 10 Gallons. And we'll see you on the next one. Till then, y'all be good.